invite you to turn with me now to Psalm 22. Psalm 22, you'll find this on page 457, if you have a, a pew Bible there. In our series on the cross, we come this week to consider the words that Christ spoke from the cross, and they come from a number of different passages. And so we want to read this text as a background to that study, for this text gives us great insight into what Christ experienced, how he was feeling as he suffered on the cross. It's a psalm from which he actually quotes as he hangs there, and a psalm that gives us a unique insight into his experience of the cross. So we'll read from verse one through to the end of verse 18 of Psalm 22. To the choir master, according to the doe of the dawn, a psalm of David. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? Oh my God, I cry by day, but you do not answer. And by night, but I find no rest. Yet you are holy, enthroned on the praises of Israel. In you our fathers trusted, they trusted, and you delivered them. To you they cried and were rescued. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. But I am a worm and not a man, scorned by mankind and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They make mouths at me, they wag their heads. He trusts in the Lord, let him deliver him, let him rescue him, for he delights in him. Yet you are he who took me from the womb. You made me trust you at my mother's breasts. On you was I cast from my birth and from my mother's womb. You have been my God. Be not far from me, for trouble is near and there is none to help. Many bulls encompass me, strong bulls of Bashan surround me. They open wide their mouths at me like a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water. And all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within my breast. My strength is dried up like a potsherd. And my tongue sticks to my jaws. You lay me in the dust of death. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircles me. They have pierced my hands and feet. I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing... They cast lots. This is the word of the Lord. Friends, let's Let's pray together. Father in heaven, I thank you for for Lucy Treen and for the word that she shared with us about how the gospels brought transformation to her life and to her heart in such a profound way that it's it's been manifest in in her decisions and in her behavior. And Lord, we know that this is the work of your grace. And so as we come to this great Savior, as we come to this same grace, would you do a similar work of transformation in our hearts? Enable us to see you as you are, we ask, that we might be changed in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if you knew that you were going to go to heaven today, what would you say before you left? 
it's slightly morbid thought, but what would your last words be? Because you'd want them to be good, right? I, I was thinking about this as I was driving in uh, to church this morning, and I realized that, you know, if I had some horrific accident on the beltway, and, you know, we have my funeral, and, and Rosie stood up here to speak about me, and she said, you know, his last words on earth were, honey, I can't find any socks, you know? <laughs> it's just not the way I want to go, Right? Not, you, you want to end on a, on a better note than that. Consider uh, some of the examples the Bible gives us of great last words. Moses said, the eternal God is your refuge and underneath is the everlasting arms. That's better than socks, right? Uh, David saying to his son, be strong, show yourself a man and observe what the Lord your God requires. Yeah, I want to go out on something like that. Or Stephen perhaps saying, Lord, as he's, as he's stoned, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The Bible, of course, also records the last words of Jesus. Seven brief sayings that he says as he hangs upon the cross. Now, you know each of these seven was planned from eternity past. Each one is rich with meaning. Each one is rich with significance. We're going to briefly walk through all seven this morning. And I wonder which one will impact you most. I wonder what, which one he is speaking to you particularly through this morning. Let's begin then with the first thing he says as he hangs upon the cross. And it comes in Luke chapter 23 verse 34 when he says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Amazing words for Jesus to speak given the context. He's just had his bloody back laid upon the cross. The nails have been driven through ankles, driven through wrists. They've hoisted the cross up and it's falling in that jarring way deep into the, the, the hole that had been prepared for it. And there, as humanity has done its worst, what does he do? He prays for us. He prays for us. Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. When we reflected on this passage a couple of weeks ago, we thought it was just amazing and astounding to consider that, that Christ would say, in this moment, God, I recognize that this people deserve to be punished. I recognize, if, if we're not going to pull any punches, I recognize that this people deserve to go to hell for what they're doing, but instead, let's forgive them. I'll die right here, I'll die right now, and that can be their forgiveness. So let's forgive them. Christ is the God who throws a blanket out to cover our shame. That's what he does. He doesn't come to condemn the world. He comes to speak that word of grace. And I wonder as we experience this grace, if, if we are starting to behave in the same way. If we become a people who, who don't so much throw out a blanket to cover the shame of others, but who <laughs> welcome others in to be covered with the same blanket we have. Right? Not to be that people who are always finding fault, you know, cross with the child who gets an A-. minus, Frustrated with that spouse who can't read your mind. Angry with that co-worker over one project or another. Becoming these people who, who aren't happy unless we're unhappy. Aren't happy unless there's something to complain about. That, that critical spirit that ought not to characterize followers of Christ. We ought to be a people who who seek to bring others under the blanket that has covered our shame. Jesus said, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you on the cross. He did this for us, and of course he calls us uh, to do the same thing. The second thing he says upon the cross is really an answer to this prayer. 
also comes in Luke chapter 23, verse 43, when he says, Truly I say to you, today you'll be with me in paradise. Remember, these are the words that he speaks to the thief who is hanging on the cross with him. And as soon as he has prayed, Father, forgive them, he immediately answers that prayer by saying, I truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. And remember, when we studied that thief, we said, he wasn't a good guy who just made a few mistakes. He was an evil guy. He was the scum of the earth. He was bad to the bone. And yet, Jesus saves him. Why? Because Jesus is in the business of saving people who don't deserve it. That's what he does. That's his thing. Saving people who don't deserve it. And so this prayer is answered in the thief who hangs there. It'll be answered again moments later with the centurion who comes to faith. It'll be answered again months later on the day of Pentecost when 3,000 people, many of whom had hurled insults against him on the cross, come to faith. It'll be answered again moments after that as in Acts chapter 6 when we read that a great number of the priests, the same priests who had brought Jesus to be crucified, they themselves come to faith. And he's been answering it through the millennium, right up to me and right up to you. In the moments, months, millennia after this event, Jesus has been answering this prayer because he is in the business of forgiving people who don't deserve it. When we thought about this word to the thief a couple of weeks ago, we remembered that it assures us that you can't be too bad. No one is beyond the reach of Christ's forgiveness. The message of his second word. For the third word, we need to shift Gospels over to John chapter 19, verses 26 and 27. And here, after showing concern about the eternal welfare of his people, he now shows concern for the the temporal or practical welfare of his family. When Jesus saw his mother, we read, and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Can you imagine the scene? I think we can only imagine it. How must Mary have felt as she sees her son crucified on the cross? If you have children or if you don't have children, I think we can still only imagine what that moment must have been like. You know, on, on one hand, she must have wanted just everything in her, must have wanted to look away, not see the suffering before her. But then on the other hand, she wants to stand there strong, courageous, hoping that her very presence there will bring some relief to Christ. Jesus sees her there and reaches out to her in tender love. Isn't that amazing that even on the cross, Jesus doesn't think about himself. He's thinking about how he's going to forgive uh, the nations. And he's thinking about how he's going to then love his mother. From the big things to the small things, he's engaged with other people. And seeing her stand there, he looks at uh, his disciple John, who is also there, and says, Woman, behold your son. And to John, behold your mother. He is entrusting to John that responsibility for caring for Mary as the years will advance. He wants to know that when he is gone, someone's going to look after his mother. Now, the question's been asked, and I think rightly so, you know, why does Jesus entrust his mother to John? Why doesn't Jesus entrust his mother to one of his own brothers? You know, Jesus has a big family. He has at least four brothers. We read about them in Matthew uh, chapter 13, James, Joseph, Simon, Judas. Why doesn't Jesus entrust the care of his mother to one of his own brothers? Uh, That would have been common in our day and, of course, common in, in, in that day as well. Commentators suggest, and I think rightly so, that the answer comes to us in John 7 verse 5, where we read that Jesus' own brothers didn't believe in him. 
We know from Acts chapter 1 that that they will come to believe in him, that post-resurrection they come to faith in Jesus Christ. But at this time, at this moment, isn't it amazing? Christ's brothers aren't Christians. And Jesus wants to entrust the care of his mother, not just to someone who will see for her practical needs, but someone who will see for her spiritual needs also. He wants this practical concern to come from a place of spiritual leadership. I've got to tell you, folks, this week... I find that principle, that practical concern must come from a place of spiritual leadership, to be about seven different kinds of convicting. Really hit me on Thursday morning. Thursday morning I was driving my kids to school, and as we got in the car, I realized I hadn't seen them, physically seen them since Monday. Now, I wasn't out of town this week. I was just up and out of the house before they were up, and I was back after they were in bed. And I was challenged and convicted, and I hope that you might be challenged and convicted too, to consider, okay, am I not only meeting the physical needs of my family, I'm also meeting their spiritual needs also. See, many of us, not all of us, and if you're not in this situation, you should know that this church is here to help you, but, but many of us are in a position where we are able to care for the practical needs of our family. Okay? Our children are fed, they are clothed, they have a roof over their head, they play four different sports, learn three different languages, uh, play two different kinds of instruments, are involved in 17 other things as well. And yet, we don't pour any time into the spiritual welfare of our wives and of our children. I'm getting particularly at the men here, because I think this is where the uh, responsibility particularly falls. And in getting at the men, I'm getting at myself. Okay? But just to be challenged, let me ask you, Would Jesus trust you with his mother? Would Jesus trust you with his mother? Or would he have to look for one of his other disciples? Practical concern must come from this place of spiritual leadership. Three things that you can do to be a better spiritual leader in your home. You ready for these? Number one, presence. You can't fake showing up and you've got to be there to have any influence in your family. Uh, One of our elders who spent a career in the Navy will say that he actually thinks deployment is easier than the work-life balance of D.C. Because on deployment, at least, you know, you're gone, you're gone. And everyone knows that and everyone understands that. And you kind of order life around that. But so many of us find that we live life here deployed to our offices. A perpetual deployment where we don't make time to show up. Be at the game. Be at the recital. Be there for dinner. Presence. You can have no sorts of spiritual leadership without presence. Secondly, service. After presence comes service. So, I hate to break it to you, but you know spiritual leadership? <laughs> try, try this this week and see how it goes. Go home and say, honey, the spiritual leader has arrived. You know? All is well. I am here. Okay? Just let me know how that goes. Okay? Um, I'm pretty sure it would go about as well as it would in my own home. Okay? Uh, leadership isn't about showing up and expecting to be the center of attention. Leadership's about showing up and brushing your wee girl's hair and fixing your son's bike and unloading the dishwasher. That's spiritual leadership. It's this act of, of service where we put our family members first that they might be blessed for having been with us. Challenging question. Are your children better off for having you as their dad? Is your wife better off for having you as her husband? Ooh. Ja, yeah. Right. Presence. 
service. Then lastly, influence. In a sense, that's what leadership is. It's influence. Influence unto what? Influence toward Christ. Your goal with your family is to have them deal with Christ, not with you. Your goal isn't that you'll be the orbit of your family, that you'll be the be-all and end-all to your family, that you'll be this heroic figure. They already have a hero, and his name is Jesus, and the family needs to orbit around him, and he needs to be their be-all and end-all. He needs to be their heroic figure. And so in a thousand small ways, in a thousand different days, you point them to Christ. They have a struggle. You suggest to pray about it. Before you go to bed, you read the scriptures with them. You do these small things that influence them toward Jesus. Presence, service, influence. Are we giving our families what they really need? Would Jesus trust you with his mother? Before moving on from this saying, notice it's interesting that that Jesus addresses Mary as mother. Uh, Sorry, as as woman, not as mother. Uh, Nowhere in the Bible does Jesus call Mary mother. He only ever refers to her as woman. Now, woman in this context is a perfectly appropriate, affectionate even form of address. And Jesus will uh, call lots of uh, people by this title of, of woman as he uh, helps them and as he heals them and as he, as he ministers to them. There's nothing negative about this phrase, but he never calls her mother. Why? It's underscoring the fact that Christ was much more than a son to Mary. He was also her saviour. See, we, we recognize that, that Mary was no sinless co-redemptrix, as some sections of the church will teach. She was in every bit in need of grace as the thief was in need of grace. She needed forgiveness as much as he did, as much as I do, as much as you do. And as Jesus reached adulthood, her relationship to him was that of any obedient believer. She was the disciple, he was the master. Jesus himself actually rebuked those who would seek to elevate or or venerate Mary. Do you remember in Luke 11, a woman in the crowd raises her voice and she says to him, Blessed is the woman that bore you and the breasts at which you nursed. But Jesus said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. He's saying, in other words, no, Mary is blessed like all believers insofar as they respond to my word. And so we have this great contrast with the thief on one hand, who reminds us that no one's beyond the reach of Christ's forgiveness, and Mary on the other, who reminds us that no one's beyond the need of Christ's forgiveness. Each and every one of us stand on a living playing field in need of grace from Christ. But of course, he loves and cares for his mother, and so he commits her to John. After this, Mark Mark 15, verse 34, comes his fourth saying, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Quoting from Psalm 22, which we read a few moments ago, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He speaks these words as darkness descends upon the earth, as the judgment of God upon sin befalls him. On the cross, we know God punishes Jesus as if he'd committed every evil thought, word, and deed of everyone who would ever believe. And on this cross, we know that Jesus experiences the the punishment, the wrath of God upon sin. In three short hours, he experiences such wrath that if you and I spent an eternity in hell, we would still not experience it to the same degree. And what was this like for him? What was this experience like for him? He says... He feels forsaken. He feels abandoned. He feels rejected. 
From eternity past, he and the Father, along with the Spirit, have lived in this perfect trinity, this intimate relationship, this eternal community where they have known and been known, loved and been loved. They have never been separated for a moment. But now he experiences nothing but the wrath of God. And note how there's a change here. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? There's a change from addressing him as as father to addressing him as God. In Gethsemane, you remember, he'd said, Father, everything is possible with you. Even as he's crucified, he said, Father, forgive them. In a few moments as he dies, he'll say, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. But right now, as he experiences the punishment that sin deserves, there's no Father, there's only God. Like Abraham and Isaac before Abud climbed Mount Moriah, so father and son climbed Mount Calvary, except this time the son won't be spared. This time the knife will fall and the blood will be spilled and father and son are separated. Powerful though, that even though he can't call him father, he still calls him God. Though he doesn't feel his presence, he cannot deny his existence. One writer says, uh, this is Donald MacLeod, a Scottish theologian with an excellent Scottish name, Donald MacLeod, says, for Christ, even at the lowest point in that black hole of dereliction, faith and hope still breathe as they must. Faith must walk where there is no light, Even when Jesus cannot say, Abba, he can still say, my God. The God he loves and serves and still somehow trusts. In the end, the hope may not burn. It flickers, even in the darkness. And his faith is a question, not an answer. Why? Sometimes faith is a question not an answer. And that's a rich truth that some of us need to hear this morning, that God doesn't want you to pretend to be something you're not. He doesn't want you to show up here and pretend like everything's hunky-dory if everything's not hunky-dory. He doesn't want you to navigate your way through the Christian life with a sort of um, glib smile on your face saying, praise the Lord anyway, life is, is all going well, if in fact your life is not going well. Even Christ will say upon the cross, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And so he calls us to come in our moments of why, to express our faith not with answers, but with questions. To come and acknowledge the struggle of the day, the struggle of the moment, the fear for the future, and how that is causing us difficulty in our walk with him. You know God is big enough for you to be honest with him. And maybe more importantly, you know he loves you enough to let you be honest with him. And when you're honest with God, you find that you're walking in Christ's footsteps. You find, strangely, that he of all people understands. This truth that Jesus understands is then heightened by the fifth word that he speaks. Again in John chapter 19, this time verse 28, where he says, I thirst. I thirst. Suffering through the horrors of crucifixion, he is now struck and parched by the horrible thirst of dehydration, and so he asks for a drink. To be honest, I found this a bit of a, I guess, a strange one to consider this week. You know, as we're working our way through these phrases, they're all pretty, like, overtly theologically rich, you know? 
Father, forgive them, they don't know what they do. Today you'll be with me in paradise. Practical concern from my mother. Why have you forsaken me? Now I need a drink. You know? It's just sort of like, huh, wait, what's happening here? Why was this one ordained from eternity past? Until we remember that it's really encouraging us to see the full humanity of Christ. That he is fully God, yes. But he is also fully human. And so he's the God who has uh, the struggles of doubt as he hangs upon the cross, but also the struggle of thirst. That hanging there isn't some ghostly figure, isn't some hallucination, isn't some symbol of humanity, but is in fact humanity itself. Like me, like you, flesh and blood. Able to bleed, able to be broken, able to need a drink. And so we come to the only God who understands us. Why? Because he's the only God who's been us. He's the only God who's been us. And he thirsts as he hangs upon the cross. The God who understands. The God who can sympathize with our weakness. His sixth word then comes with his tongue wet with the sour wine that they have given him. He takes a deep breath and then he cries out in a loud voice. John 19 verse 30. It is finished. It is finished. He says, it's a triumphant cry, it's a victory cry, because the work that the Father has given him to do is now complete. That three hours of darkness where he has suffered the punishment for sin is over. He has taken the cup of God's wrath and he has drunk it to the very dregs and there is now no more left to do. His saving work is done and he gives it to us as a gift. And so he says what no other high priest could ever say, it is finished. And this is a great encouragement to me as we have those moments where we struggle with assurance of salvation. As we struggle with, you know, can I really not make shipwreck of my faith? Can I really not screw this up? Can God not only just really forgive me for what I did, say, before I was a Christian, but also all the stupid stuff I'm doing as a Christian and all the things that who knows what I might do in the future? Might I mess this up? And Jesus says, it is finished. It was finished. It is finished. It remains finished. Finished is what it is. What can you add to finished? Nothing. So we shouldn't try. We should rest. Rest in the finished gospel that Christ has given us. Following this, he says a seventh and final word. Luke 23, verse 46. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. All is complete. All is finished. So, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. One writer says, no one ever died like Jesus died. You know, on one hand you could say, well, he, he died at the hands of, of evil men. And yes, the Bible teaches that. You know, you could also say, in, in another sense, well, you know, it was God's will that he be crucified. Yeah, the Bible says that too. But there's also a third sense in which nobody took his life from him. He willingly laid it down. And he told us that he would in John 10 verse 18. No one takes my life from me, he says. But I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down. And I have authority to take it back up again. Even on the cross, Jesus doesn't hold on to life with white knuckles. But he lays down his life. Why? For me. For you. Giving up his life. Being obedient even to the point of death. Augustine comments on this section and he says, 
I love this quote. Who can even sleep when he pleases, as Jesus died when he pleased? Who is there that can put off his clothes when he pleases, as Christ put off his flesh at his pleasure? Who is there that can depart when he pleases, as Christ departed this life at his pleasure? How great the power to be hoped for or dreaded that must be his as judge, if such was the power he exhibited as a dying man. In his very dying moments, Christ is sovereign over life and sovereign over death. If you doubt, he'll prove it in three days. And so we come to the God who is sovereign over our lives, sovereign over even our deaths as well. Which one of these phrases leaps out of you? Leaps out at you? Have you considered that Christ planned it perhaps from eternity past, that it might resonate in your soul this very moment? Let's take a, take a moment to pray and reflect upon these things. Father, there is no perfect church and there's definitely no perfect preacher apart from Christ. And we have heard his perfect words this morning and ask you to take them and to apply them, to, to work them deeply into our hearts and our souls that, that one of these words, perhaps two of these words would, would stay with us and provide that encouragement, maybe that challenge, that comfort, maybe that rebuke that we need to hear from your lips this morning. Thank you for planning these things from eternity past. Thank you for saying them on the cross. We praise you in the name of our perfect Savior. Amen.